Hello and welcome to Rocket's Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by Wealthfront and LinkedIn. I'm Simone de Rochefort, supervising video producer at Polygon, and I'm here today with Christina Warren, senior developer advocate at GitHub, and Brianna Wu, executive director of Rebellion Pack. We've got a exciting show for you today that uh, is a, a fire conversation with our special guest, Edward Niedermeyer. Um, and you know what? I don't see any point in wasting time. Let's launch right into the chat. For our very first topic today, we have a special guest, and that person is Edward Niedermeyer, the author of Ludicrous, The Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. Uh, it is a 2019 book about the launch of Tesla and the company's first 15 years under Elon Musk's leadership, and I feel like it has never been more relevant than now. Uh, Bree, this is your special guest, so why don't you give us a special, special introduction? <laughs> my special guest, it's it's my dream day on Rocket. Like I, I had Edward show up in a and 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 uh, surprise me. Thank you for being on. We really appreciate it. Um, you had a tweet thread that went mega mega viral with uh, journalists and other people commenting on uh, Tesla Motors. I certainly saw it because uh, like I had about. 15 people DM me uh, to me. So uh, first of all, can you just tell people a little bit of background about why your book is suddenly so hot and so many people are discussing it? Uh, yeah, well, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I kind of would have to speculate about why. I mean, as, as you mentioned, it, it came out in 2019. So this, this is not a new book. Uh, it, this August will be the, the third anniversary of it being out. And, you know, it sold okay, um, but you know, I also knew when I wrote it, uh, and this is one of many like significant challenges I had writing the book was that I knew the story wasn't over. Like I had right. a sense of, of where it was going and I feel like I was able to sort of put together a, a pretty reasonable, uh, reasonable sort of arc to it. Um, but that was, that was really hard because there was still so much, um, that's happened since 2019 uh, that, you know, was at the time that I was writing, like completely unpredictable. Um, but I think to, to answer your question, you know, I think that people are kind of starting to see through Elon Musk. I think when he mm. talked about, you know, for years. So so the first thing that that he talked about um, that I really, you know, uh, maybe kind of see through him was was about auto manufacturing. And I've been covering the auto industry for a while. And I was really kind of you know, had educated myself a lot about auto manufacturing. And that was one of the things that was like, the things he's saying about this just doesn't make sense. And we've seen this sort of over the over the years, he's talked about neuroscience and this, that, and the next thing. And, and professionals in those fields kind of constantly are like, wait, I thought this guy was supposed to know what he's talking about. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I feel like, and I'm speculating here, but I, I feel like one of the things that's happened is you know, since him, he talked about, he started talking about Twitter and, and this Twitter acquisition and then also politics. He's sort of been talking more about things that you don't have to be an expert about, you know, to have an opinion on, right? Twitter is a thing that, you know, if you use it, you kind of have a sense of, of what's going on and whether or not the things he's saying about it make sense. You know, politics. Um, it's not like artificial intelligence or auto manufacturing or these things where people just say, well, he's talking confidently. He must know what he's talking about. Everyone else thinks he's a genius. So so this must just be true, which I think has happened with a lot of the other things. And, and you had you had a Twitter thread that certainly got my attention and made me um, go buy your book because it was basically saying, look, you know, he, he's basically been uh, hyping things up for a long time. And it, it, I think this is about to come crashing down. So, you know, I read your book and my God, I could sit here and talk to you for three hours about it. First of all, any listener go buy it immediately. I don't often buy books and literally finish them like as soon as I possibly can, <laughs> because I'm spending every single second I'm awake trying to listen to it. Uh, this is that kind of book. It is a thrilling narrative. And I, I want to say this, not necessarily 100% critical of Musk. I mean, you go into the history of how he built Tesla and some of the Faustian deals he did along the way. It's a, it's a very fair book, but it's also compelling. What I want to talk about in the show today is kind of talk about this um, pattern that he has over and over uh, that you, you cover in your book of making these really, really big promises that 
don't seem to pan out. And I want to start with uh, kind of talking about the the solar-powered uh, Tesla supercharger network. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for for all the, the kind words about the book. Uh, it, it took a long time to, to do. It was a very painful process. So it really means a whole lot to hear that um, that you enjoyed it, and also that it was easy to read because I think this is a, a lot of tough topics in there that are that are hard to make sort of easy to to just sort of absorb, and um, uh, that was really hard. So, you know, one of the fascinating things I, I didn't cover uh, Tesla. I didn't get really sucked into the story until 2015, and the solar supercharger promise that you mentioned um, was in a, a, one of the first big Tesla events that the company now became famous for, which are kind of like a cross between a, I don't know, a, a party. It's it's part party. It's part sort of, uh, you know, tent evangelical, uh, you know, session, uh, uh, revival, um, and and part sort of carnival or something. And and Elon puts on these shows. It's become a big part of Tesla and and one of the things that, you know, the hardcore fans love. And, and in 2012, this was one of the first ones. And I hadn't seen it live because I didn't follow Tesla closely at the time. And I remember going back and and watching it on YouTube, which you can do. Uh, it's it's all there. And he was promising. And this was the superchargers. Um, so the 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 Model S had just come out. Um, these superchargers, you know, it was the first time a, a company had put out an electric car and said we're also going to put out a, a, a charging station, a network of charging stations. And like hmm. this has become one of the really important things that Tesla's done. And and to your point about fairness, I think it is really important. Musk tries to polarize people, his mm. a, a political tactic, right? And and I think he's calculating that people have to either love him or hate him. And I think one of the things that I've really, you know, felt very deeply throughout this whole process is that, you know, the people who love me the most are the people that hold me accountable. And so for right. me, love and 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 accountability go hand in hand. And, and so what he wants is not love, he wants enabling. Essentially, right. he wants codependence. Right. And and so, you know, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, making the Model S was a, a you know, it's a it's a modern classic. It's one of the classic vehicles of the of the of the 21st century. It's not perfect, but it's it's a classic. Um, and the idea to put out a, a charging network um, was really important, you know, for this transition point, at least. We'll see how important it is down right. the road, but it was really important. So, but, but, so, so that was good, well, right? Actually, can I, can I just give a little bit more context? Cause there's so yeah. much there with the charging network, just to, to the Please. part that I want to talk about here. So basically, Elon has this uh, press conference and he gets up and he says, look, you know, we're putting out this super uh, charging network that it's it's actually going to have solar power built into it. Yeah. It's actually going to add energy back into the grid. So we are going to be not just carbon neutral, but actually helping solve the problem. <laughs> and there's this, this huge conference and like these great promises. And then you follow up with it and the story ends up being, well, it turns out people really don't want that. And some very evasive statements like, well, we may do some of these in Europe. It's not coming to the United States. There's a pattern in your book that you uncover of him doing this over and over again. Uh, another thing is with him, like having this event on stage where people uh, have a Model 3 and he's like, well, we're going to fill up an Audi at the same time that we're uh, swapping out the battery in this car. Oops, that's only 30 seconds. It's still filling up. Bring on another Model 3. Let's do it again. And making these really wild promises that any Tesla is going to be able to swap out the battery and, wow. and recharge quicker than anywhere else. And then it just doesn't come to fruition. This yeah. is a pattern that you write about, like I was counting from my notes at least six times that I recalled in this book. So, um, I mean, first of all, is that a fair assessment? Do you agree with that? And how do you think that kind of carries over to Musk as he's looking at buying Twitter and doing other things? Yeah. So, so yeah, as you say, I mean, he, he promised, uh, that these, these superchargers would be off the grid. They would generate more power than the cars took out. None of that has, has turned out to be true. The swap station was actually what got me into this, uh, in, in the first place. I, I had heard about another company that I was fascinated by because, you know, the two big problems with, with cars are electric cars are the charge time and the upfront cost. And there'd been a, a company called Better Place. We won't have to go into that, but I was fascinated by them because they solved both of those problems. And Tesla was going to solve this the, the charge time problem with the swap station. I went and it wasn't actually being used at all. And, and it turned out that was actually just a way 
for them to get basically double the number of California ZEV credits, <laughs> zero emission vehicle credits. And, and these credits were how um, they sort of turned most of their initial profits um, they would not have been. They they would not be here today without this ZEV program. And and literally, we're talking about hundreds of millions, if not billions. We don't know the exact number, but hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in in pure profit revenue, right? And 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 this has been one of the things that that had kept Tesla alive. It's the reason it's still here today. And so when I when I stumbled on that, it was like, oh, this company is a it's like a technological facade, or at least this battery swap thing. It's a technological facade that props up a financial facade. Um, and, and I think the pattern that you mentioned is really important. And, and this is why I'm a big believer in studying history. And I went into the history of the company after having this sort of eye-opening moment, like seeing this battery swap station, not even being real, um, and, and them using like diesel, uh, power generators to charge up, you know, cars on a busy weekend instead of making the swap station open. Um, this was the moment I was like, oh my God, I have to dig into this company. This is so cynical. Like they're, they're not going to just do this. There's other stuff, right? There's, there's never just one cockroach. And what I found digging into the history of this company is actually a story that's, that's really kind of at the heart of a lot of Silicon Valley dysfunction, which is, you know, this sort of fundraising treadmill, right? Mm -hmm. You, you come up with this idea, um, that's going to change the world and, you know, you convince yourself, yeah, we can do this. You raise some money to do it. You start doing it, right? You raise the money before you really start doing it. Then you start doing it and you realize, oh, wait, this is way, way, way harder mm -hmm. uh, than we thought. And, and this happened almost immediately with the Roadster for Tesla. And then what happens is, is that then you have to go and you have to raise more money. And now you're behind the game, right? Because now you have to raise money to, to, to do the thing you already promised to do. And in order to do that, you have to make another promise, Right. And so you're falling behind. So you have to make another bigger promise, raise money on that, use that money to pay to to follow through on what you you know originally promised. And then, you know, well, then you have to deliver on that promise. And so then you have to make some, another one and, and raise money from that. And and really. So there's been this escalating pattern of, um, you know, Tesla, you know, taking on new things and making big promises in order to raise money. And, and I think one of the things that that set Tesla apart um, in 2013 is that this this is a, a very common you know just reality of of uh, private Silicon Valley startups. But in 2013, after Tesla had gone public, um, you know Musk really sort of took this into the into public markets. And for me, this was the birth of what we now call meme stocks, mm. um, which have now become this huge phenomenon. And that's another really important lesson of all this too is that. However you feel about Elon Musk himself, and you know, I understand. Like, I don't think it's right, but some people, I think, genuinely do believe that he should play by a different set of rules than everyone else. Which, again, I, I don't personally agree with at all. <laughs> uh, and I think, but I think, like, what those people don't realize is that when you do that, um, you know, you're creating incentives, right? Essentially, he's not just playing by by different rules than everyone else. He's making a lot of money doing it. And I think that creates an incentive for everyone else to follow his his lead. And so even if you think that he should get, um, you know, a special set of rules for him, uh, I don't think anyone wants to live in a society where literally everyone uh, behaves like he does because it, it just wouldn't work. Yeah, absolutely. This episode of Rocket is brought to you by Wealthfront. It's considered a good idea to have a chunk of money stashed away for your term-to-term -term financial goals. And having a solid strategy for your long-term investing can give you real peace of mind. The secret to Wealthfront's performance is great software. It's built to make it easy and rewarding to build your long-term wealth. Wealthfront's automated trading optimizes your portfolio based on your own risk settings, which helps you to reach your financial goals without lifting a finger. They also get you automatic tax breaks that can boost your returns even when the market dips. You can go with Wealthfront's expert-built portfolios, including a socially responsible option that's designed around sustainability, diversity, and equity, or you can build your own portfolio with their curated selection of funds. Wealthfront is trusted with over $27 billion in assets, helping nearly half a million people build their wealth. And Investopedia just named them their best robo-advisor for 2022. To start building your wealth and get your first $5,000 managed for free for life, go to Wealthfront.com. 
dot com slash rocket. That is W-E-A-L-T-H-F-R-O-N-T dot com slash rocket to start building your wealth. Go to wealthfront.com slash rocket to get started today. Our thanks to Wealthfront for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. So beyond like um, uh, what I want to talk about is like the, the the valuation of the stock because I thought you're you have some things in in your book that I think are really prescient to anyone out there that might think about him then investing in Tesla. So it's a fact that uh, right now uh, Tesla is um, according to the stock market worth every other car company on earth combined. Right? Yep. Uh, the PDE ratio is insane. At one point in the last week, it was ninety. Uh, to put that into perspective, Ford's is 3.5. Uh, Ford sells four times as many cars as they do and has a really killer electric truck on the market. Um, so um, what I want to talk about is, um, well, I want to give listeners some background from your book. Um, you talk about the original vision of Tesla and how they were going to kind of Silicon Valley the car industry and save money. And one of the ways they were going to do that was to not build things like the Gigafactory, but rely on third-party manufacturers and kind of recycle those uh, those parts. Uh, if you think about the first-gen Lotus, uh, first-gen Tesla, rather, it was essentially a Tesla Roadster. And the original idea there was to basically modify a Tesla, uh, a Lotus Elise, which is a very, very light car, and sell it. Musk got involved with that made a ton of personal changes that made it astronomically expensive and, and basically threw that playbook out the window. You get further down and where they had this original pattern before where it costs a billion dollars, according to your book, I believe, uh, to develop a new car. And they were going to have the profits from the last car fund the next car. Um, But they find themselves in a situation where they are unable to do that. And now that we're entering this space where uh, you you compared it to Citron, which was this automotive company that came out with the first uh, Unibody, and then Unibody was so ubiquitous through the entire uh, automobile industry that the only time I think about Citron now is when I'm playing Gran Turismo. (laughs) (laughs) This this weird, weird uh, thing. French, yeah. So if if you're looking at like the history of Tesla and where the stock is going to go from here, there's an assumption that uh, it's going to keep growing and it's going to get more and more profitable. The reality, at least as I understood your book, is even though they have 85% of the EV market here in the United States right now, they're not particularly profitable and a lot of the things they're doing are very fungible. Um, is that a fair assessment of your book? Do I, do I have those points correct? Yeah. So, so at the moment they are making money, but we're also in a very strange place in, in terms of the U S market right now. Like usually the U S market is oversupplied. We're undersupplied right now. I don't know of any time in really like, except for maybe like the import limits of the early nineties or whatever that this happens. So we're in a very unusual place right now, which I think does help explain why they're making money. Um, also, I, you know, I think, right. So, so you referenced the top secret master plan, which was in 2006. And, um, this is a blog post that Elon wrote where he said, you know, yes, this Roadster is a $100,000 sports car, but if you buy it, like the profits from this are going to fund, you know, more affordable cars. And this has been a really important part of, of how Tesla markets, right? Because it's selling to wealthy people, but it's telling them, you know, this is not just a toy for you. Uh, this is something that is helping, you know. It's going to trickle down. Yeah, exactly. It's trickle down. Exactly. And the reality is that hasn't happened, right? You have to make profits in order to um, in order to have them trickle down, right? And and up until very recently, Tesla didn't make profits. When they did, it was from selling these regulatory credits. Um, and so that's been, you know, um, a, a, a big thing. And, and, and so, you know, this sort of culminated with the Model 3, right? The Model 3 was supposed to be the car where, and, and and by the way, it happened every generation, right? The Model S was supposed to cost $50,000. Today, you know, you, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like I think most of them sell for closer to 100000 basically not far off from where the Roadster sold at. So, so they weren't making that progress of it's going to cost half as much as the last car. Um, and then with the Model 3, that was supposed to cost $35,000. And today it's like almost $50,000 to get the, the cheapest one. Um, and, and so they're not making the progress on that. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that, you know, Tesla is set up 
like a premium car company. Like their values and their culture and how they do things is is all oriented around creativity. And their base, frankly. Yeah, it's it's well, and, and I'll tell you, like again, like I think it's important to give Tesla credit where it's due. What the auto industry missed more than anything was that there were a lot of people, particularly in this country, but around the world, who have made a lot of money in technology. Technology mm-hmm. has been changing all of our worlds. People have been making money through this revolution in technology. And these people did not have, right, like car, like premium luxury cars are a way that we, um, you know, reflect ourselves and our values in society, right? And and no one was making a car for, for tech people that that they felt like, mm. oh, this reflects who I am and, yep. and my values and the role that technology plays in my life. And so that's what Tesla did. And and to be fair, that was not just Elon, right? I think he I think he understands that, and I think he was part of making that happen. But like, you know, Mark Tarpening, who's one of the original founders, he was the guy who was going out walking around in Palo Alto and noticing that people had Priuses parked next to Porsches, and mm-hmm. he's the one who put it together that like, there they people want the combination of these two things. They want the technology of the Prius, but they want that sexiness and allure of a of a Porsche. And m- part of marketing this is changing the world, which again, Silicon, how much more Silicon Valley does it get, right? That, you know, buy this thing that is just like this amazing product, but oh, by the way, it's also saving the world. And it's going to get software updates. It's going to get better over time. It's not, um, you know, just kind of a, a, a one-off car where it, it loses value over time. You know, I mean, I think you could argue that if, that if you bought a Tesla five years ago, you, I mean, this is true for a lot of cars, but this has been more unique to Tesla. The resale value on it has been significantly better than other cars of its class. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of that is the um the just the market, right? It's just a, a tighter market. And and they also, by the way, they control their used market. No, they do, they do. I mean, I mean, look, I I'm 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 not disputing that, but I am just saying, even before we got into the situation of the last two years, uh, and I say this because I'm one of those those tech people where literally I I'm I'm not joking when I say this, I have at least a dozen friends. Yeah. who have Teslas and and who have bought them over the years. And, and that number is only continuing to increase. And many times these are people who have traded in their other $100,000 cars for a Tesla. Hmm. And, yeah. and, 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 it, and it is, and they're, and these are people who I also should add, many of them do not like Elon Musk, but they like the car. And, yeah. and, and, and there's, there's, I, you know, I, I don't want to diminish the, the branding value, whoever made the initial, you know, like connection is great, but the execution, I, I, I mean, you know, personally, I think we do have to give Elon some credit for that, for, for executing yeah. on, on, on that idea. For sure. But, but okay. So, so right. And, 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 you know, now all of a sudden like model years of cars, uh, you know, are just having like one generation where you build the same car basically for four years. And then you maybe like do a facelift and sell it for another two or right. three years. That's out the window. They're constantly making changes all the time. Again, tech people see that and they're like, yeah, that's how I work on software. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. And so, and so it's a wonderful way to very subtly but effectively market this to wealthy tech people. The flip side of this, and by the way, this is also one of the huge themes of Tesla, is that Elon convinces people that he simply has come up with the better way, when in fact all engineering is trade-offs. And oftentimes what he's doing is he's optimizing for a short-term impression and trading off on the long-term experience as a result. Okay, and and so, you know, one of the, or, or he's trading off something else, right? To 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 oftentimes to market it, and with this constant updates, and it's not just the software; it's actually a bigger deal on the hardware side. Um, this is one of the reasons why their quality and manufa- their, their manufacturing is inefficient and their quality is is poor, is because to do something well, you know, it takes practice. Doesn't matter what it is, and making cars is incredibly hard. Like it's the it's the hardest form of manufacturing just about that there is. And when you make the same thing over and over and over again, you can really standardize things and you can do what um, in, in the Toyota production system is called Kaizen, continuous mm-hmm. improvement, which is sort of, you know, one of the most sort of things that's most revolutionized the, the auto industry is this Toyota production system. And, and you know, you can't do the same kind of continuous improvement when you're constantly changing everything. And right. by the way, also, you know, this is why... Uh, when something, you know, so so then, you know, it's harder to get the quality right. There's more defects. Okay, you have a defect. You have to take it into the to the um, the service center. And then the service center, um, you know, needs parts. But because every, you know, week or two, you're making changes, like 
keeping a track of all the parts inventory and making sure you have enough parts at every service center for all the different permutations of hardware that you've built over the course of this vehicle's lifetime, like that gets really hard. And then you, so now your car is sitting at the, the service center for weeks or even months. And this was quite common at different times for different problems, like two, three months of your car just sitting there. And, you know, people assume in the car business that, uh, you know, the more expensive a car is, the more demanding the customer is. But it's actually the opposite. The <laughs> least reliable uh, and hardest to service cars are, you know, things like Land Rovers and Jaguars and Maseratis mm-hmm. and Alfa Romeos, right? Right. Um, and uh, and and these are premium vehicles. And it's because the the you know people who rely on their car they don't care as much about it reflecting their values. It is just an appliance for them. For them, the only thing that matters is that it starts every single day, it gets them to work, it doesn't strand them, and God forbid something does break, they're able to go and get it serviced right away affordably. And and so this is sort of the issue with Tesla is that, you know, they've marketed, they built this amazing brand and this amazing premium, you know, market of of passionate fans um, uh, who love the company and love the vehicles, but like they're doing it all in ways that fundamentally prevent them from scaling and not, not just scaling in terms of making more cars, but but getting the price down and making them affordable for everyone. And by the way, like delivering on their actual mission that they've been promising all along, which is that, you know, this is going to be something that now, you know, someday everyone will be able to, to take part in. And I think that that's all incredibly well said. The only thing I would maybe ask would be, if we assume all that is true, and, and and I think I think there's very little to kind of argue with there. I guess my question is fundamentally: Does it matter? Because we can quibble about the stock valuation and the level being uh, too high and whatnot, but but the market is irrational. It's been irrational for years. It didn't start with Tesla. It won't end with Tesla. Um, I think we're we're in a period of correction right now, and that could have a big impact on a lot of things. And 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 Tesla, the the way that people have um, you know shorted the stock and have had made other bets on it might you know, uh, have have uh, some uh, larger market impacts, but but it's not as if this is the first company that has ever been in a position like this. And, and the, irish- the irrationality of the market, certainly, even if we agree that like Tesla was maybe one of the early meme stocks, it's certainly not the only time that we've seen this sort of ridiculous exuberance, um, uh, e- even in the last decade, let alone if we, if we look at a macro level the last 20 years. But I guess my question for you is, if we can assume that all these things are, are true, does it matter? Because no, the cars are not getting cheaper. I mean, they're nominally getting less expensive, but they're they're not getting cheaper. They're also comparatively, if you are to compare a um, because my my mom has been going through this right now. If you are to compare like a, a Model S with um, a, an EV Mercedes or BMW, your price is the same. Um, uh, the Tesla usually actually comes out a little bit lower. So again, I think for the target audience, I don't know if the, if, if the price going down or not, how much that actually impacts anything. You still have people who like the car. You're still, there's still whatever it is, 75, 80% of, of the EV market. How much does this actually matter? I mean, we can talk about all the things that are wrong, but it, it seems like people are, are still willing to buy it, put up with it. And the banks are still willing to make the investments and, and give the loans. So, so I mean, because they yeah. broke the system. <laughs> right, right. I'm just saying. So, like, so, so, I mean, I, I understand the upset, but I also want to just kind of say, like, okay, so this is all happening, but what, 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 what consequences are there actually going to be, or yeah. will there be any? Yeah. So, so, look, I think that um, as a as a car company, right, as a, as an EV, as a maker and marketer of EVs, um, I think there's enough good and enough bad in what Tesla's done. Um, look, I, I think that they could be like, like to me, it's a, it's a question of honesty, right? Like, uh, first, if you need to tell people, you know, that this is benefiting the, the, it's not just a nice thing for you. This is something that is, is helping, you know, the less fortunate someday move to zero emissions, right? Like that's a fundamentally, you know, and, and maybe, and maybe it, it's a lie, right? But, but maybe it's something they believed and maybe they just haven't you know, uh, uh, been able to achieve that. And, but, and but how much, how much do you think the buyers have actually really prioritized that? I mean, genuinely, I, because, I, you know, it's hard to say why people buy cars, right? Um, it, and, right. It is. But, but, but I mean, I would say, I mean, just, and again, I'm just going anecdotally on, on like the many people I know who have these things. So again, don't even like the guy, like yeah. they're looking at 
What tech do I have? What mm. am I going to be getting the best mileage on? What has access to the most chargers? Which even though the charging network and the solar stuff hasn't worked out, they've done a really good job of, of kind of selling themselves and, and, and getting in front of that. And, and I think, honestly, I think we have to give Tesla credit for the fact that we have more EV chargers out in the world, period, whether they're superstations or not. I, I don't think that we would have had that push from the um, uh, traditional car companies. I just do not think that we would have seen that. I think that they had to be dragged kicking and screaming into this market. And that's why they've been late. And that's why they've uh, largely failed. But I guess like, I, I'm not disputing the fact that the, the integrity is lacking. I just guess I, I wonder like, okay, but but so what? I mean, yeah. I, I, don't know if, I don't know of any car company, to be completely honest, that is uh, that has integrity. I mean, Volkswagen was fined billions upon billions of dollars. I I, I think that, that everything Tesla's done. I I don't know if you could make the argument that they are are, are have less integrity than Volkswagen. Oh well. Uh, so okay. So um, where I was going with that is is so you have this this cycle that I described earlier of uh you know throughout the country uh, company's history right like having to come up with bigger and uh you know bigger sort of goals to raise money to pay for the last thing. Sure. And to me, the dividing line. I think everything. Before 2016, there's a lot of bad there. And by the way, like, you know, in order to maintain this, this gap, right, between perception and reality, because that, that's what Musk has been doing, right? He he promises things like this solar supercharger network or the battery swap thing or, or all these other the $35,000 car that, that never gets delivered mm-hmm. on. And to kind of maintain that, they do a lot of really like not cool things uh, that, that, you know, uh, keep information out of the public's hands, right? right. So, so that people don't see the truth. So like, it's not just that like the public has had a long time, it's taken a while to to figure this stuff out or the market has taken a while to, but it eventually all works. Like they've been fighting against it at every step, including doing things like when I wrote stories, like writing a blog post that said that I'd made up the story and that I did it because I was short selling the stock, which they had no evidence for. Like my stories had evidence, theirs didn't. And yet he got believed and and it took three years, you know, for or, or more for people to mm-hmm. be like, oh, like maybe this guy, we shouldn't just trust this guy. Maybe we should listen to the people who are like, uh, yeah, I did the research here, right? The breaking point, and I, and I will say there's been a lot of short sellers and people who were way too trigger happy to call Tesla like a fraud or a scam or things like that. To me, the breaking point was really when they went from just being an EV company, which I agree, I think that ultimately you can say there's there's fundamentally like uh, 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 enough good there, right? That, that that can be something that can stand on its own. It's when they went into the realm of automated driving that I think these promises, you know, achieved this like escape velocity, right? This cycle right. achieved an escape velocity where they crossed out of just like, you know, what you can kind of justify within this context of, you know, what is frankly kind of a problematic culture in Silicon Valley of like overpromising to investors. Cause you're right. Like everyone does that to some extent. Um, but, but with full self-driving um, autopilot itself is, is deeply problematic, but, but full self-driving really is where the, the point where it was just like, this is just a scam, but it's also a scam that um, puts both their customers uh, and everyone else on the road at risk. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, also really threatens um, their like the public's uh, trust in uh, autonomous vehicle technology, which I happen to believe is a is a really it's going to be one of the most important technologies in the next uh, hundred years, and it, it's one that really depends. If you've been in a fully autonomous vehicle, you know it depends on trust. And uh, the way he's been doing this, um, he's been it's 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 a scam, but it's a scam that 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 also, like I say, endangers people and, and erodes trust in this technology. And I think that's where, you know, if you look at it just as an automated vehicle company, um, uh, that that th- that's the point at which it's like, okay, this is this has become something that can no longer be justified. I also just want to say to that, you know, additionally, you, you talk in this book about the way that Tesla fans targeted you for speaking out in some really, really, really personal ways, right? I am of the opinion that the market can't correct itself and come to a fair valuation if you can't have honest discussions about this. Yeah, I can tell you just from my own tweets over the last two weeks, it's been, well, you want the earth to die then, right? (laughs) Like, I can tell you, there are a lot of Tesla fans I interact with that do believe that their car is making the difference on that. And I think, you know, Tesla's not the only uh, offender. Or at least feel threatened if you imply that it doesn't. 
Right, 100%. I think there's a problem with uh, the bots and, frankly, some journalists. I have a friend of mine who's a pretty... I respect the guy. He goes on CNBC a lot of the time, but he does nothing but hype up Tesla to a point that it's it's embarrassing to watch him. And, you know, I think that ultimately, in my opinion, I, I don't see this stock continuing at the valuation it's at today. Uh, I'm not a financial expert. That's just my opinion based on reading you know, your book and other things. And I think if we can't have an honest conversation about that without the bots, without the army of Elon fans, you know, without, frankly, the disinformation, without the meme stock people on Reddit, I, I just think a lot of people are, are going to get broken by this, in my opinion. So I, I think the stakes are high. Yeah, that that piece of it too, the the online phenomenon is really, I think, where some of the most troubling lessons of the whole thing come from. Because like I watched as, you know, these owner forums where people are trying to just exchange information about problems that their cars are having. Um, You know, there was a, it was a very different kind of culture then uh, among these Tesla, early Tesla owners. And there was a point at which I, you know, I started reading the Tesla investor forum. It was like a sub forum in this, in in these bigger sort of forum websites. And the culture in the investor forum was, was like what you see now of this kind of toxic culty thing. And I remember when I was working on a story and so this is an example, right? Tesla was using non-disclosure agreements. Uh, if you had a defect with your car, um, they would make you sign a non-disclosure agreement in order for free repairs. And that was cutting off the safety regulator from the only independent source that they have of, of information about defects in cars. And it was a huge problem for the regulator. And um, and when I wrote the story exposing that, like they attacked me. Um, and, uh, you know, what I saw was, was, you know, as these investors realized, oh, like these owners who are trying to exchange information that, that, will improve their ownership experience in light of these defects and problems that 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 Teslas have like oh that's giving you know evidence or that's like give, giving evidence to you know critical reporters and to short sellers and to people who hate Tesla and therefore hate the planet and big oil and 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 all of these like conspiracies and so you saw then this like really kind of like radicalized investor culture spill out into the rest of these forums and then and then spill out into the broader internet and you saw, you know, a guy who was a moderator of the r slash Tesla Motors subreddit, you know, become a writer for this blog, Electrek, um, which then becomes like Tesla's mouthpiece. And then you have these other, you know, and, 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 and Elon with one, with one tweet or one retweet, you know, can send tens of millions of people to these sites and just like completely take, take this site whose only thing going for them is that they somehow get a lot of information out of inside Tesla, which is very hard to do. And somehow Elon Musk always wants to retweet them and they're <laughs> always super favorable, right? So he retweets them and then, and then other of these, these car blogs notice and they say, wow, like that, this is now like one of the biggest car blogs around. I'm going to try and make a play for that. And then Elon plays them off each other. And whoever hypes him up the most gets that retweet and gets the ten the, the the fire hose of traffic. And so he plays them off each other to to and 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 so they're radicalizing, right? And so he is definitely, and, and by the way, the, the the piece of this that we don't know much en- enough about. We know that Elon Musk has been uh, you know, spends money on um a variety of uh you know, reputation management and and different kinds of shadowy <laughs> online things. I personally once uh, identified and I didn't dox them publicly, but I, I found out that um, through a lot of hard work that one of the moderators of the of the Tesla Motor subreddit was an active employee of Tesla's at the time. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> you know, I, I confronted them and, and they said, you know, oh, please, no one knows about it. You know, I'll get in trouble. I'll get fired. Just I'll, I'll resign if you don't tell anyone. And, and I agreed to do that, which I kind of regret because you know, I'm pretty convinced that, you know, there, first of all, there's no way that this, this person was posting like, you know, all day long through work hours, like given the, what I know about the work culture, there's no way they were doing that without their boss finding out. Right. And so, and then I also subsequently learned a lot of other things. Um, so I think there's been, you know, a lot of this is organic, but it's really, but, but some of it definitely isn't. And it's becomes very difficult to understand like where that line is and who's a, you know, an operative and who's just a really, really passionate fan or investor. 
Um, and then especially when Tesla put like referral marketing, where now if you can convince someone to buy a Tesla, they use your referral code, then you get, you know, these things. And and like, again, the guy, you know, this guy, the main writer at, and reporter at Electrek, um, for one example, like Tesla owes him two of the next generation roadsters, which don't exist. But if they did, that would be $500,000 worth of Tesla. Ooh. And I don't know how you cover a company as a reporter. Well you, well, you don't. But 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 that guy is not a reporter, right? Like, like I mean, let's just be real. Like, he also owns 9to5Mac and 9to5Google and other things. And he's not a reporter. Um, it, 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 the, the fact that I think that, that we as a public treat him with that respect, I think is actually, in my opinion, like far more egregious than whatever, you know, terrible affiliate deals, uh, Tesla is dumb enough to give people like the, 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 yeah, media, the, the, the media themselves, we should stop, we should stop hyping him up because he's not a reporter. Right. But their, their stories are on the Reuters newswire. They're on the Bloomberg newswire. I agree. Newswire. I, I, like, I, I agree. And, 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 but, but I mean, I, I don't think we can blame Tesla for that. I really don't. I mean, I, th- I think that the fact that, that uh, Google News and, and Reuters and Bloomberg and other places and frankly, other news outlets that should know better, that will report and re-report what Electric says or re-report what his other sites sell because he's been very clear. I, I, I know this guy a little bit. He's been very clear from the very beginning. He is all about all of the, the sites that he has for affiliate marketing purposes and to get as much cash as possible. There's absolutely no ethics involved. We are coming up, I think, on when we should maybe wrap this up. Uh, Edward, do you have any any final thoughts that you'd like to add? Um, no, you know, look, uh, this is... Uh, uh, I think this is a really important topic. We didn't even really get into the, the full self-driving and autopilot stuff. I think there's some really Ooh. important issues there, which, again, to me, are, are really when you think about sort of how the consequences of of Tesla sort of matter into the future. I think a lot of them are in that area. Happy to come back and, and talk about them if that's something you want to do. But um, but in general, look, I I to me, you know, writing this book and and talking about this story, um, I, I'm really gratified that people want to learn more about it. And and for me, it's this really isn't about making Tesla look bad, making Elon look bad, making people feel bad for owning a Tesla or anything like that. It's really that you know, cars are one of the most, the reason I got into cars, I'm not really a car guy. Uh, I studied political science and, and I, for me, it's, they're just a foundational piece of our material culture. And it's a really important, like, it's a really good way to understand a lot of different aspects of, 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 of our culture and our values and a lot of other things. And, and I think this story um, is one that really has a lot of super important lessons about, about the markets, about information in the internet age, about cars, about technology and about a relationship with all these things. And I hope people, I, I'm glad that, that um, Brianna, that you found this, the book to be, you know, sort of not, maybe not neutral. It's hard to be neutral when a company has attacked you the way they've attacked me, but like fair, right? Because to me, what's important is not what conclusions you come to about whether or not Tesla is good or bad or should exist or shouldn't exist or, or any of that. It's just like learning the the lessons from this experience because over the long run, like we need to come to terms with a lot of the issues that 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 this story raises. Mm-hmm. I I want to stress this. Like reading your book, I I DM this to you. I actually walked away respecting Elon in a lot of ways I didn't before. Reading about the hustle that he used to like fund, like when there was no money there and so many car companies crashed, the hustle that he used to go and get the Model S out the door. I don't particularly like the Model S. That that really made me appreciate what he did to deliver and understanding just how much like sleep he lost trying to turn the Model 3 uh, production hell around uh, made me appreciate him more. So I, 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 this book is not a polemic. This book felt very fair to me. It's Look, it's accurate to say it's more critical than it is like praising him, but it, it, it was a lot of insight. And, uh, you know, um, I, I think all of our listeners, uh, if you've enjoyed this uh, segment today, you're definitely going to love the book because we didn't get into a tenth of that. <laughs> we are going to have to have you on again. Um, definitely. Hey, so uh, the book, uh, Ludicrous, The Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors, is out from Ben Bella Books. Um, do you have a preferred vendor that people can buy it from? 
Uh, you know, I'm I'm a Portland, Oregon boy, so if you want to go to Powell's uh, Books, <laughs> heck yeah, uh, I got a shout out Powell's local independent bookstore. Um, but you can also buy it directly from my publisher, who was uh, took a big risk, you know, taking on this project and publishing this book. So buy directly from them too. Um, those those would be the two I would shout out. Great. And where can people find you online? You know, the best place is on Twitter. I'm at Tweetermeyer. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Edward, for coming on. Uh, lovely to talk to you and to listen to your views. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. This episode of Rocket is brought to you by LinkedIn. Time and place is everything, especially in marketing. But in today's age of a million messages per minute and not enough hours in a day, how do you really catch your target audience's attention? Fortunately, there's a simple way. LinkedIn can help you speak to the right people at the right time. With LinkedIn becoming number one in B2B display advertising in the U.S., you've got a great advantage. You can stand out against your competitors while nurturing customer relationships and growing your brand. LinkedIn delivers you quantity and quality. Its targeting tools allow you to reach your precise audience down to their job title, company name, location, and more, which means your ads are being seen by those who matter. It's no wonder companies of all sizes and sectors are using it. Take Main Street, a company who helps venture-backed startups claim tax credits. They increase their annual recurring revenue by $12 million, which is a big number, with LinkedIn's marketing solutions. Scale your marketing and grow your business with LinkedIn advertising. As a thank you to their customers for helping them grow three times faster than the competition, LinkedIn is offering a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash rocket to claim your credit. That is linkedin.com slash rocket. Our thanks to LinkedIn for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right, for our final topic today, uh, Christina, we were going to chat about this last week, but we totally ran out of... No, you hadn't received it yet. No, you I ended up not receiving it. it. The exactly. Steam Deck. You finally have I it finally, in your hot little hands. I do. And yeah, you I played do. with it. Tell us about I it. I have. Okay, so first of all, it's massive. Like, I, I showed some photos of it on, on Twitter just to give people a perspective. Um, you know, you have a 14-inch uh, MacBook Pro, Simone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, it, it's it's the the um, the length of that. Ooh, hoo, hoo, hoo. Oh, my God, that's big. I'm I'm holding that on my lap right now. That's what I'm saying. So, so if you set it on your on top of your MacBook Pro, like it is it is the length of that. Um, and, and then it, and then the, the width is a little bit harder to ascertain. Um, it's it's a chunky boy, though. Like it, it, this is certainly if you're thinking this is going to be, oh, this will be like switch size. No, not even remotely <laughs> close. Um, having said that, so far, I am not having a problem with um, the size, even though I have very, very like microscopically small baby hands. Um, although I, I think that if I were playing like a lot of like heavy, like like FPS games or, or other things, this would probably be one of those systems that would um, maybe I would need to take breaks um, uh, ever, every so often. Also, because of the weight and, and the size and the heft, at least for me. I could not lay this like laying back like mm. on my back in bed with not it, like, like holding your phone up. over your face kind of thing. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, if you do that, then you're actually going to give yourself like uh, like a bruise. Like you're going to you're going to hurt yourself. <laughs> um, don't do that. But I have to say, it's real good, guys. Like it's it's real good. Honestly, ever since I passed up the chance to buy your 256 model, every single time I boot up Elden Ring, I think. I sure would be. I would like. I would like to be playing this in bed, but I'm not because I didn't buy Christina's <laughs> other Steam Deck. Yeah, and that's okay because yep. I I do genuinely feel like as much fun as you're having with this right now for someone like me who likes tech a little more plug and play. Like you're gonna you're gonna do emulator things on it. Um, yep. and sideload stuff. I I wouldn't do that. So I I feel like for me waiting for whatever the second gen of this will be whatever the oled totally <laughs> release will totally. be yeah <laughs> makes sense but yeah there's going to be a refined version probably with some you know hardware improvements um and and probably they're probably going to reformat like the, the sizing a little bit i would imagine um they have recently like i fix it has has announced they will be carrying basically every part for the Steam Deck, they're, they're not in stock yet, but wow. basically you'll be able to get like the motherboard, you'll be able to get like the, the chassis, you'll be able to get the fans, you'll be able to get like basically every single part for it, which I have to give Valve credit for, is very cool for repairability and for other stuff. Um, but it's 
it's real good. Like I, uh, I was hopeful, but I didn't know. I was like, okay, how much, what, what, what will this really do for me? And I have to say for someone like me who had looked over the years at getting a gaming laptop Mm -hmm. and didn't, because I was just like, I don't know if I would use a gaming laptop enough this. And I got the 512 model because I just wanted it. I wanted the the slightly um, better screen. The screen that I have has like the the scratch or the glare free scro- uh, coding. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Yeah. And 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 it also has like the larger SSD. And I was just like, I go ahead and go all out. Um, you know, it's about half the price of actually probably closer to you know a third of the price of of what a good gaming laptop would be. And granted. I could play Game Pass things much easier on that, and and those um, you know have uh, like higher resolution screens and and whatnot. But I feel like for me, for my gaming experience as a portable thing, I don't think it would be any better. Yeah. So so for me, this is I'm actually very happy I got this instead of getting a gaming laptop. So this is my big hesitation with it, um, and it's uh, please don't make fun of me, <laughs> but even with just the Switch. Like, I cannot hold that thing up for, like, really long periods of gaming, right? Like, if it's a, if it's a short burst, you know, like, I can play Final Fantasy VIII if I'm, like, balancing it on something on my lap or whatever. But I'm, like, imagining playing something like Overwatch, right? Mm-hmm. And I just, it, it looks so heavy that that's why... I didn't buy it when my number came up. So is that is that a fair concern? Like the weight of it um, or, or, I, or yeah. I think it depends on how you play it. Because for me, how I'm mostly playing it is I'm sitting down and I'm either mm-hmm. at a desk where I could have it on the desk and kind of, you know, like propped up that way, or I'm in bed and it's kind of in my lap or I'm in a chair and it's in my lap. So for me, it hasn't been a problem at all. Um, uh, but, but I, but I guess it depends on how, how, how you like play the device, but the way I've been doing it, it has not been a problem at all. Um, but I'm also not really holding it. A lot of times it's kind of, you know, more sitting, you know, on my lap, so to speak, which, which is fine. Cause that is what I would be doing with a laptop anyway. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite thing to play on it right now? God, I've been playing a bunch of stuff and, um, uh, I, I like we when um when we had um uh, someone on about the the humble bundle um for uh, for Ukraine, I got like a ton of stuff from that, and so I I, I don't even know I I've been playing I mean some of the stuff I've been playing has just been like stupid stuff that I've could play on a million other systems, but it's just fun to kind of uh you know uh, try it out on other things. I, Lawnmower Simulator is is fun. <laughs> I do, I, Look, I like it. I don't care. Yeah. Um, there's, a, you Smooth know, but, but I, 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 I did get Elden Ring. I haven't gotten super into it yet, but I did get Elden Ring. And um, the only thing I have to say that is frustrating at all is that this is so perfect for Game Pass. Yeah. Like this is the this is the only thing that kind of kills me is that the the Game Pass component here, and there is a workaround with the cloud gaming side of Game Pass where you can. Um, uh, add um, a, a flat pack version of, of a beta version of Microsoft Edge, and then you can configure a couple of things and um, uh, add it into your Steam library. And then from like the, the the main kind of easy to use interface, it'll immediately launch into Game Pass's cloud thing. Um, you log in and and you can choose the collection, and and that actually the the collection of, of games you can play cloud are growing all the time, and the latency depending on your connection is pretty good. Having said that, like the PC collection is far better. And the only way to do that is, is to install Windows, which is is not a great experience right now, and and um and go through that rigmarole. So I'm I'm hoping that eventually what will happen is that the community, and I think we will have to rely on the community for this because I don't think Valve really cares about investing that much into creating a really good Windows experience for this, even though I think that if they did, they could sell even more units and and honestly sell even more Steam games. Mm-hmm. But I think that that I'm hoping that I'm hopeful the community at some point will start to come up with kind of modifications and, and a launcher, so to speak, on Windows that will replicate more of of the the, the Steam OS experience so that you can have easier access to things like Game Pass, but also, you know, uh, Epic and, and GOG and some of those other game stores, which 
to varying degrees work uh, with with SteamOS right now, but but some of them you know require harder things than others. But that's the only thing that I'm kind of like in a w- kind of weird quandary with because there are certain games that like I would really love to play and that are on Steam Deck, but to to play them or not on Steam Deck or on Game Pass, but to play them on my Steam Deck. Like I have to make a decision. Like, am I just going to buy this game twice, mm. or 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 am I going to, um, you know, play it on my gaming PC, or is it a cloud offering? So that's yeah, it kind of the only thing. more complicated than one would wish it would be. Well, if you're a Game Pass aficionado, yes. I mean, yes. which which to be clear, you know, Steam wants everyone to live in Steam, and and look, who knows, maybe Steam will come up with Steam Pass or something. Um, That'd be cool. Which. Which would actually be great, uh, but but uh, I have to say it. That's that's the one thing where I I, I looked at this and I I almost tweeted it this week and I, I didn't because Microsoft Build was this week and I, I wanted to say you know that if if the Xbox team were serious about this stuff they would start coming up with either um, if not a full on like kind of Proton compatible launcher for Steam OS that I, I don't necessarily think would be in their best interest, but I, 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 it would be in their interest, I think, to do whatever they could on their end to make the Steam Deck work really well with Windows mm-hmm. so that people could kind of take advantage of both. Um, and, and that would be, I, I think, epic because at that point you do have this portable <laughs> device that is. No, it would be Microsoft. Well, hey, hey, just a little epic game store joke for you all there at home. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Christina, before we wrap up tonight, do you want to just tell us real quick what you're doing? Yeah. So I'm going to San Diego uh, for a wedding and then I'm going to Atlanta for Vendor ATL. So I will not be here next week uh, because I'm actually going to be on a work trip for the first time in two plus years. Yay. So I'm going to be meeting... Yeah, I'm going to be meeting some of my colleagues for the first time in real life, which is going to be awesome. And um, I'm just, yeah, I'm I'm not, I'm not going to be around. So uh, uh, Christina's Hotel Tours, there is going to be a really good one um, uh, as you're listening to this, uh, the the day you listen to it, because I'm, I'm going to San Diego on Thursday. And then there will be a Christina Airbnb tour um, next week once I'm in Atlanta. So check me out at, at awesome. you know, my Instagram. Yeah. Exciting. Have a very fun time. Thank you. And Brianna, what are you up to this week? Oh my God, what am I up to this week? Uh, so, uh, well, I'm obviously it's been a busy work uh, week at work politically. Uh, We're still working and finding uh, Derek's mom. It is great. I checked up on that before we started recording today, just to be like, eh? yeah, she's still missing. That's nuts. She's still missing. Um, there, it's literally the. I'm, I'm really proud of this. We've put together the largest. Uh, uh, hunt for uh, to find a missing person in all of Phoenix history. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've got at this point it's 350 volunteers. Uh, we had over 100 people scouring uh, the desert last week uh, trying to find her. So um, honestly, it's it's the end game for this. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're we're really hoping we can um, we're really hoping we can find her soon. Thank you for working on that. Um, what I'm doing this week, <laughs> I guess, slightly tone shift. I would like to inform everyone in the world that RRR is finally on Netflix. <laughs> uh, is, the, oh, wow. Awesome. Yes, uh, it is the Hindi version. So it's a dubbed version. Um, that being said, I, I did. I put it on while I was doing chores the other day, just in the background. Um, and it didn't bother me as much as I thought it would. I think the uh, the songs are where I noticed the language difference most because I listen to the songs in Telugu. So like I know what I expect the words to sound like and then the words don't sound like that. And I'm like, ah, but the, the <laughs> voice dubbing, at least to my ears, um, again, I don't speak Hindi or Telugu. So it, <laughs> big shrug, but it sounded fine to me. Um, RRR, for those of you who maybe missed my first conversation about it, is this incredible Indian action movie um, that's like a little bit masculinity propaganda uh, and all a good time. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> it, it's a bombastic action movie without any of the cynicism that you might see in American action movies. Um, it is dramatic, it's heartfelt, it's beautiful, it's romantic, it is uh, bonkers, uh, balls-to-the-wall bonkers, it's very fun. Um, and in addition to it finally being on Netflix, there is a one-night encore in certain theaters on June 1st. So it's showing here at the Alamo Drafthouse on June 1st, 
I convinced a couple friends in Oakland to see it. At, it's at their local theater in Oakland. Um, and I've just taken a, a glance around and it's at a few other theaters just reappearing again on June 1st. So if you do want to see it, I, I think there might be a higher likelihood of those showings being in Telugu. I know that mine is. Um, if you want to see it, it's coming back briefly. Uh, and I, I totally recommend seeing it on a big screen. There is nothing like it. And I also recommend not watching the trailer because you'll go in there and you will be a changed human being. You will walk out with your blood pumping twice as fast and twice as hot, maybe even more than twice. Um, I love this movie. I, I don't think about anything. Do you else secretly anymore. work for their PR team? I should. Frankly, they should hire me. I've been doing a lot of work. I've convinced I, I've gotten a lot of people to spend at least $20 and over three hours of their lives watching this movie. And I deserve compensation. <laughs> ah. <laughs> ah. Brianna, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me online uh, on the Twitter machine at Brianna Wu. And you can find me on everywhere at Doom Quasar and videos at youtube.com slash polygon. You can find Christina on Twitter and everywhere else at film underscore girl. And her show, uh, The Download, is on GitHub's YouTube channel. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Uh, if you like this show, please do give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. I super duper appreciate people who do this thing. This episode of Rocket is terminated. 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 